This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Patreon is a monthly subscription that you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. And you can find us on our YouTube channel with the same name. And you can start watching the episodes as they're released. Thank you for listening. And thank you for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. And this is The Beirut Banyan. Joseph, thank you for returning to the podcast. Uh, I appreciate uh, our upgrade and downgrade. The upgrade is that we're using video and we're still able to experience each other, albeit virtually this time around. The downgrade is that both of us are expiring and I can see it from your side that you do need a shave and I need a shave and I think both of us need to get out more. So I'll blame that probably yes on coronavirus less to do with our sort of uh, our need our, our upkeep I think it's more to do with covid-19 but I'm I'm really mm-hmm. happy that uh, that you're back on the podcast and I want to kind of catch up where we left off back in January I think a lot has happened in the last 5 months but before we get into all of that just your own immediate experience with the coronavirus these past months how has it been for you in your own life, your own sort of social circle, yeah. your own daily routine? Can you just give me a feeling of what the life on your side has been like the past few months? Mm-hmm. Uh, look, first of all, I'm, I'm very happy to be back on uh, on the Banyan and very happy to see you even from uh, afar. Uh, look, for me, in fact, the, the, this, this confinement is very particular on, on several sides, on on several levels. Uh, first of all, I'm confined in Beirut, where I have been, in a way, uh, blocked uh, during a business trip. So I was mm. there when the pandemic began. And I, uh, in fact, uh, very willingly chose to stay here because a quick comparison between the conditions uh, of being confined here and being confined in Paris uh, were a no-brainer. I mean, it's much better here, paradoxically. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, what's interesting is uh, more on a national and collective level is two things, or are two things. The first one is that I'm confined in a, in a house, uh, in a city and in a country where things had already collapsed, in fact, much before the, the corona pandemics, and uh, the country was already comatose when we entered ourselves in in coma or in pseudo-coma in our ho- homes and houses. Yes. So it's a very surrealistic uh, situation being here because you don't know much what has to do with what. If uh, the slowdown of the country, the, the kind of the, the rarity of things that you can find, etc., mm-hmm. is due to corona or to the economic crisis. Of course, uh, Probably also the climate of the revolution and the upheaval that started before is uh, today, of course, uh, on, on over the shelf because people are at home, but you can feel things boiling. So this is the first level where things are quite surrealistic. You are confined in a country that is already almost clinically dead, but not by 
by sanitary issues or sanitary <laughs> aspects, but by economic and social aspects. The second one, which is, uh, we, I, I can't but think about it every day, every morning, every evening, is that I'm confined in the same, exactly the same house where I used to be uh, often locked up during the war. Yeah. And so uh, there is a kind of, uh, of very morbid, but at the same time, very interesting metaphor to, uh, to make between wartime and, and the times we are living. And uh, this has a lot to do also with the way you live uh, time and space and uh, the freedom of movement, the way you see your friends. Uh, you have to pick up the friends that you see because you can't see them much. So all this also is uh, very weirdly familiar, I could say, <laughs> and it helps to uh, to reflect on a country that is deeply in crisis anymore. Anyway, so all yeah. this is for me a good opportunity. Let me say I'm not unhappy being there, and it helps me reflect a lot. Um, uh, I can't complain on my personal level. Things are. Uh, fantastic i'm living very well relatively to other people <laughs> on my personal level i'm, I'm quite okay uh, but i can't but reflect on the on on all this uh, on all these issues in fact in, in 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 time and space regarding the country you know joseph I'm, I'm glad you opened it up this way and i just want to sort of add one thing is that you were very kind the last time we recorded back in january you let me into your apartment and we recorded i think where you're sitting right now in the living room of your apartment exactly yeah and it was yeah. a thrill it was really yeah. just i mean and you mentioned that you you had not been back for a while this is your parents home you grew up here and you showed me a desk which i thought was fantastic this french embassy relic yes and i in a way, it was almost yeah. like a time portal into the French era and mm -hmm. then, of course, independence. And you're in an older building, and I, I really enjoyed being there and discussing all that was happening. I'll Thank you. you. I hope you'll be back soon. I hope so, too. And I wish we could do this actually in person. Um, but I'll add to that yeah. something, which is I, I like that you're taking me back to an earlier chapter in your own life regarding the Civil War and lockdown. On my side, being in New York the past few months, for me, this has been a whole new thing. Seeing a city that I always associate as bustling, even in times of crisis, whether it's 9-11, whether it was Hurricane Katrina and, and these sort of uh, episodes, sorry, not Katrina, Sandy, um, that this time yeah. around, it is completely dead. And that for me is a shocking experience to see New York asleep. So I think in a way, uh -huh. there's a lot that we can reflect on. And these are, I know that the whole world is sort of going through this in different ways, but it's a shared experience. And I'm sure when we meet in person, we'll have a lot to add to it. Let me just start the conversation yeah. with uh, a piece you wrote several weeks back. It was released last, last April. It was for the Carnegie's Duane blog. And it's a piece titled In Between Life and Death. And the reason I want to bring this up is because, although it was released last April, the end of the month, the last sentences struck me as sort of a, a very appropriate way to begin this conversation today in late May. And if you let me, I'll, I'll sort of read it out loud. If the Lebanese in revolt do not find inventive ways to revive their dissent in this time of coronavirus, if the protest movement does not provide answers to the questions that are now preoccupying most Lebanese, they could discover upon ending their confinement that their country's agony has ended with its death. Now, those are very bleak words, and I kind of want to get into this. 
And I like that you chose the word death. That is a word that I've kind of hesitated to use. And I think a lot of the optimism that we both shared several months ago, some of it has faded. I just want to get your own direct response to this. Do you sense that this is really a make it or break it moment for Lebanon? Are we really now choosing a way out or a way sort of to the grave? Yeah. Uh, look, in fact, I, I kind of answered that in, in the first uh, part, I mean, in, uh, uh, for your first question, because I said that uh, being confined in a place where things were already almost uh, halted is a way of saying that, yes, we are unfortunately uh, approaching a kind of, uh, of complete agony, if not death. Uh, uh, I'm not the only one who, be, who, who is afraid today of really discovering a country that is uh, in a much more severe uh, state than before, than in November, December, January, and etc. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, when we will get out of our homes after this confinement, we'll uh, probably find a country uh, almost in ruin and in rumbles. Now, uh, this is, has to do with the political situation, but also what I'm afraid of, and this was the, the meaning or the intention before, uh, be behind this last sentence, is that what I fear uh, is exactly what something also we, we, we talked about during our last interview, that if things go bad and, and deteriorate further on the social and economic front, probably the new shade of the revolution or the revolt will be uh, one that is much much more radical and much more violent. Mm -hmm. I think that this is also what leads me to pessimism. I think that, uh, you know, uh, with what's happening today, uh, the acceleration of the economic collapse and also the acceleration of the rottening of things because of confinement, and this is a worldwide phenomenon, you can feel it in New York. Mm -hmm. What I'm afraid of, and many are afraid of, is that the backbone of the vitality of this country, which is namely the, the middle class, this very vibrant middle class in the country, will probably, if not complete, but go very well ahead, it's erosion. Mm. And um, when you don't have a, a vibrant middle class, uh, First of all, political phenomenons that are not very much welcome are much more probable to occur, like authoritarianism, populism, uh, proto-fascism, and etc. But also at time, revolt when it's not done by this backbone, or when this backbone is not very present in a, in a popular revolt movement, it's more the fringes that become, uh, that set the tune and that uh, give the tone of it. And I'm afraid that, in fact, we're going towards that very quickly. Mm. And I'm almost sure that if people don't, be, don't, don't get aware of that, the people who were, in a way, strategizing this revolution in the beginning are not aware of that and, in a way, use the confinement time and this kind of suspended time uh, we are living in in order to, to probably organize, coalesce, prepare for the after, this after will be very gloomy, I feel. Uh, now, to talk about death, of course, it's a metaphor that is very much dictated also by the worldwide health situation. I mean, you know, when you live in a pandemic, it's like uh, the plague of Camus. Uh, you, you, <laughs> yes. you, are, you are really plunged in this kind of, of morbid uh, atmosphere that you can feel. Yeah. Probably, paradoxically, Beirut is less uh, 
hit by that because Beirut has always had this kind of very, let's say, paradoxical and maybe schizophrenic uh, life and death character and uh, happy and, and gloomy at the same time. But I think that the reality check, check after this period will be very, very harsh. Now, can I ask you, then, that's a very good way to enter this conversation. In your own sort of experience, having gone through episodes of crises before, whether they're war-related or whether they're economics-related too, what are the inventive ways this time around that you see fit for the protest movement not to die so that the country can emerge long-term, not short-term, but long-term in a better situation? Are there, are there any sort of yeah. immediate ways forward? I see I see at least one immediate way and one more, let's say, longer term. Mm -hmm. The immediate way is um, to avoid the trap that I'm seeing uh, completely there, present, which is, in fact, uh, to completely only focus on this government of, let's say, marionette that is now ruling the country and forgetting that there's an entire system behind it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that way, uh, by, by, by continuing to focus on this, to join maybe part of the political class that is also co-responsible of the collapse of before. This is one of the main uh, risks that I see. Right. And to avoid it, what's that sound? Oh, that's New York. <laughs> so that's, I okay. live, okay. these are, it's okay. been like this for three months, four months now, it's just sort okay. of, you know ambulances always passing yeah. sorry about that yeah yeah no no i'm sorry so to avoid that probably the best way is to really decisively build and construct this third force that is uh, between the two camps that traditionally are tearing apart apart and polarizing political life in the country what i'm afraid uh, of and this is something we talked about in the last interview is that um, this movement falls back into the trap of being divided along the March 8, March 14 uh, divide line and cleavage. If we do that, I think that things will be almost uh, inscribed for failure because probably uh, the, the revolution and the popular movement will be really the minimum force between these two giants and it will be completely scratched uh, between uh, or, or crushed between them. So I think that this is the immediate uh, goal that we have to pay attention to. I'm trying very modestly to use my presence in Beirut to talk to people about that and to try to, to warn about that and to try exactly to use, to make a good use of this time you are at home in order maybe to work on texts, on uh, calls, on etc. Not everything is made in the street, you know. It's not only sure. the street taking the political tempo, and definitely it's not only the street that will define uh, the after, the Lebanon of the after uh, collapse, of the after COVID and etc. This leads me to the longer run uh, observation or task. I think that, and this is where we could be paradoxically a little bit more, more optimistic than, uh, than pessimistic. You know, in the collapse and in this kind of uh, death of the country and mainly of the economic model, you have certain opportunities that will arise. Probably that we could become more competitive on certain levels if we know how to produce certain local things. We can maybe stop the slide towards this frontier economy mm. into mm -hmm. which we were and try to maybe invent a new model 
probably the collapse of the political class also and its failure to tackle all these issues, even the sanitary issue and the technical day-to-day -day issues, will lead to a kind of political vacuum. All this is a, is a huge opportunity for a third force to emerge uh, 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 if and only if it does its homework. I mean, if it uh, works on itself today, making use of this suspended time and preparing for the future. But I think that longer term, if we really understand uh, the weaknesses and what's gone and what has disappeared, and we understand what is ahead and what is changing in the region and the world, you know, the, the, the world economy is transforming partly because of COVID, but partly because of other things, maybe we can find a niche uh, on, upon which we can replace Lebanon much more positively and much more constructively in the future. You know what, the, there are three points here I want to get into, and I guess they, they would line up in the political realm, the economic realm, and how they overlap, of course, and then that niche area that you're discussing. I'm going to just start with a sentence earlier from that piece in DUN. Uh, it says, for a country in deep paralysis, the disease, meaning coronavirus, was the embodiment of its continuing agony. And you're kind of setting the stage for the larger picture. And you referred to the the old March 8, March 14 division. I just want to get into that in particular. Uh, when you say that you don't want people to revert back to those old dividing lines in the Lebanese context, I'm, I'm assuming by that you're saying you don't want the geopolitics to be part of the story. Did, did I get that right? Yes, partly this is it, but partly also there's a very huge domestic dimension, you know. Today, for example, partly the, the main opposition voice or the vocal opposition that we hear against this government and its decision is exactly the ousted part of the political class that was in government a few months before when the revolution started. So uh, leaving the space only for these two forces I'm only talking on the domestic side here, okay. is the trap that I'm uh, worried about. Mm -hmm. Now, on the top of that, of course, comes the, the regional and the, and the international level, of course, mm -hmm. that will pollute it, undoubtedly. Can I ask you, though, how, how, how do you see that factoring in, that, that sort of the regional politics chapter that has been largely absent from the story up until now? Largely, not entirely. But how do you see that sort of, if you will, infecting yeah. the, uh, the moment? Probably, um, metaphorically, I would say that as soon as the collapse has been, uh, in a way, acknowledged by everybody, and we have started to talk about solutions or remedies, mm -hmm. uh, very quickly the regional and international equation uh, stepped in and started to interfere with things. I give you only one example, Ronnie. Uh, the entire debate, for example, on should we go to the IMF or not? Should we seek international yes. help or not? Right. Under which condition should we seek international help or not? Is the conditionality that will be put upon us in order to get this help or not is something that we should accept or not is already a huge geopolitical game mm. that is overlapping with the domestic situation. Now, let me give you the two extreme poles of this, of this landscape. On the one hand, you have the same paranoid party that we talked about, mainly Hezbollah and his allies, that are afraid of going to the IMF because they consider this as uh, getting, let's say, delivered 
completely uh, hand-wristed to the world imperialism and uh, putting themselves under very harsh conditions that will severe and constrain sovereignty, etc., etc. And on the other hand, you have people who are either betting on the fact that aid will only come under the condition that Hezbollah completely surrenders its weapons and completely change its uh, skin, which is something that is uh, completely irrealistic, or even some of them are maybe discreetly or secretly, secretly wishing for the failure of any negotiation with the IMF, mm. uh, wishing that maybe the collapse of the country will bring about the death of their local enemy. So all this is a way of complete, completely, let's say, diverting, uh, transforming, if not polluting the domestic debate on that level only, which is by, by, I mean, I think directly a simple technical technocratic debate about what should we do to stop the slide of the lira, what should we right. do to stop the losses of people in the banks, what should we do to help people find a job, what should we do to uh, recover the economy and put it on a productive level. Of course, and we know it, I know it, you know it, that to do that, you have certain macro-political uh, conditions to meet, and among them is, of course, a toning down, if not a change of nature of certain parties in, in Lebanon, but conditioning everything to that and secretly wishing that this could be the remedy to solve the domestic problem mm -hmm. is something that is probably... Uh, um, putting things under under the wrong, let's say, uh, spotlight. When it comes to the IMF issue, is it really a that there's no other option available? Therefore, the geopolitics can only can only shift things so much. But that the IMF bailout is really the only sort of way forward at this point. Did, did I get that right? Yeah, the IMF and other external aids, like said, like other... Yeah, of course, yeah. potentially the world... On certain, on certain political reforms, I mean, there's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and do you see, and this is just your own personal opinion, do you see that happening? This is maybe the most challenging part of that IMF bailout. Proper reform, accountability, monthly checking, auditing all the things that would come with that kind of restructuring program. Yeah. Is that something that you can imagine happening? Uh, with, with the prevalent, with the actual political class, the answer is almost definitely no. Right. And this is why, this is why we have to get back to the original slogan of the, of the protest movement that is Kilon uh, Kilon. Because mm. if someone is illusioned that uh, stopping corruption in Lebanon is only predicated on closing certain illicit circuits that Hezbollah is controlling or um, uh, by um, talking about the weapons or the delineation of the Syrian-Lebanese border, mm. but without tackling the real structural macroeconomic construct, construct of the country that has started with the end of the war under the Syrian tutelage and then under other circumstances and then under Hezbollah's uh, complete control of the country, this would be a very partial and, and uh, let's say, uh, very skewed vision and reading of the economic situation. I'm only talking technically here, I'm not talking political, uh, political choices and preferences. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is, if people say, okay, 
Hezbollah has to lift its hand off the country and things will go back to normal. This is a complete also illusion and I don't think that the IMF people or the Sadr people are only asking for that in order to, to help the Lebanese. They are asking for, for uh, they are asking the Lebanese to build a normal state and a normal state system and a functional economy and a functional administration, all of them, including Hezbollah. So we get back to the argument that I was trying to make before. So if we only focus on one part of the picture and in a way re-enter the 14th March uh, leverage, we are not doing exactly what, or we are not doing what exactly the IMF and other donors are asking from us. Now, if for certain forces in the country, the help, the external help is only a way to get rid of a local player, i.e. Hezbollah, and then get back to the normal game without this normal player, I think that this won't make it. And this is where I was, uh, I was exactly saying that mm. the third force, that is neither this one nor the, the, that one, should organize and try to become, maybe with difficulty, uh, the candidate to be the main player in two, three years from now, mm. when things will be better, when we will get back to a normal political game, when probably the curve of the economic uh, crisis will start to uh, maybe normalize and get and get upward. Uh, of course, this is a, a maybe a wish, and maybe we won't ever see that. But if we don't prepare for that moment, I think that other bets are not only for me unrealistic, but they are also very dangerous for the stability of the country. You know, so there's there's a lot said there, and I, I, I appreciate that you're always putting things in perspective, which is good. You're still sort of pointing at the larger story here, which is that there is a tendency for this moment to kind of go back to the way we know, which is that sort of division, that schism, and then the geopolitics gets involved. But I, I want to focus in on the point that you're making, which is that third option which you're kind of betting on if there is to be a sustainable way forward. I spoke last week to Sergio Khadil uh, in an yes. episode last week about, about, about the issue of time constraint. And, and he said that uh, there's just no time at this moment to hope for a better, you said marionette, I believe, uh, if I heard that right, a better cast of characters to sort of take the reign, that you're kind of stuck in a way with what we have at the moment. And I, I wanted to get your opinion on that. Is it that there is simply no time and therefore the onus should be on the current regime to negotiate something that works? Or, or am I sort of hearing something else, which is this regime is still part of the problem. It's the old way of governing. Therefore, it's not up to the task. We should really just simply just wait for something better to emerge. So in other words, the time issue, do you see that as yeah. sort of a critical for what's happening no although although what you said at the end is more or less what i feel and think mm. but i tend to agree with sergio khalil on the tactical and maybe political level mm. yes we don't have today the luxury of uh, substituting something else to 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 whatever is in place today mm -hmm. uh, these people are there because uh, something happened we did not choose them people didn't choose them uh, now it's up to them to do maybe what is partly a dirty job and partly another job. So far, they have taken the decision to do it. At least let them do it 
properly and let them at least put the diagnosis. And this is where I think we have to get uh, uh, to, to make a better use of this time whereby these people are doing that kind of job in mm. order to prepare for the after. So we can't, I mean, I think it's completely unrealistic and maybe suicidal today uh, to think that we can tell these people, please uh, step, step aside and we'll take it. Because first of all, the we is not constituted. Mm -hmm. There's nothing called we today. And second, we don't have any clue about what to do collectively tomorrow in order to cope with this. Now, we know what is the problem. We know more or less what is the road ahead. But they have to clean the mess that they have created in a way. And then probably the political space will open up. But all this is conditioned by the fact that we remain vigilant. Because if, of course, we say now they are doing the dirty job, we are confined at home because of Corona. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see, no, this suspended time will be a lost time for us and a time that will be exploited by other parties, among them the ousted part of the political class, to reoccupy again the entirety of the political spectrum. And this is something that we should not allow. And this is why I was saying in this Carnegie paper that although it's difficult to work inventively under confinement yeah. through political mobilization, we should find ways at least to prepare for the post-confinement mobilization. So it's really two things at once. It's holding the current regime to account as much as possible, given all exactly. the constraints. And that in, that's beyond coronavirus. That's just all the constraints combined, including the economic pain. And, and you mentioned this in the piece, which is predates any coronavirus, but has been exacerbated since, and also preparing sure. the stage for the next regime. So in other yes. words, it's two, two layers at once, and that's where the protest is. And a third layer, mm. uh, by doing so, preventing also the ousted part right. of the political class to come back and uh, on a white horse and play it hero-like and say, we told you that these people were going to fail and etc. we're back again to business. Because mm -hmm. all of them are part of the same, more or less of the same system and the same uh, way of thinking, in fact. And that and led to the, to the collapse. And, do you, and can I just ask you, do you see that linked to the IMF bailout? That this, the, the ousted portion of the regime would use that as a way back in? Yeah, if you, if you don't approach things in a black and white or a zero-sum game way, which, which is the way I, I tend to have or to take, I think you could think that the set of conditions and constraints and strings attached that will come with any aid, IMF included, is by itself something that is in the long run incompatible with this political class, all shades included, mm -hmm. you see? Mm -hmm. So they will swallow the poison and the callus, but then after that, ultimately, they will not be able to uh, take the, the road uh, for that. I mean, they will not be able to last on the road for that. Because, cotton, I mean, almost genetically, their DNA uh, does, not, does not allow them to, to construct what is needed in order to sustain a constructive, productive economy. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. that uh, by itself, the conditionality, the set of conditionality, is something that is in itself a helping hand, a leverage, that we have to uh, properly use and, and intelligently, let's say, put to our profit if we can. You know, and this is my own perspective as somebody who's younger and maybe seeing something like this for the first time. The level of expertise 
that's available is profound. So whether it's analysts or experts, academics, social activists, whatever, civil society is really stepping in, which I think is very healthy. And, and you mentioned this earlier, you don't have to be on the street to be part of the story. But just I want to pick your brain on that issue before we get to the third part, which is sort of the the new way, that kind of niche uh, perspective that Lebanon could embrace. I want to get into civil society. Last time we spoke back in January, we both kind of shared a a caution when it comes to their contribution to or sorry, not their contribution necessarily, the regime's attention and willing to pay attention. Now that things are worse, now that the financial situation is much worse than when we last spoke, do you see them finally waking up to the experts' advice, whether these were previous emergency reform plans, whether it's ongoing policy papers, whether it's rebuttal papers, all that kind of expertise and that knowledge that's easily available that any citizen can access, do you see them as sort of more inclined now to move the ship in a better direction, or are they still as incompetent as, unfortunately, we assume at times? I, w- I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the word incompetent because it's a bit harsh for mm, them. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a kind of amateurish uh, slash naive approach to things. Okay. Mm. Now, uh, I think the, the 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 answer to your question is twofold. First of all, experts. Uh, and civil society are not mutually exclusive. I mean, uh, the civil society include uh, a lot of experts, and experts or technocrats by themselves are not value-free. They are not all good or all bad. The the power structure and the sulta and the ahed and uh, etc. has also its own uh, bunch and army of experts and technocrats. And this was the trap of maybe in the first time of asking only for a government of technocrats and etc. You're referring to the current regime. Technocrat is, right. is independence toward the political forces. Mm-hmm. Now, the second part of the answer, the second thing I would like to maybe shed a light on is that uh, uh, civil society and experts uh, by nature are not always on the same wavelength in, in terms of uh, political choices, yeah economic it doesn't mean anything to say oh but these people are like us in the civil society but maybe they have other interests other political inclinations Mm -hmm. other political culture other economic preferences which is exactly the normalcy of any state of any society i mean society is diverse so civil society used by itself as a kind of mantra to say Let's give it to the civil society. Okay, but which part of the civil society? Today, for example, the same civil society is divided between the people who have lost their money in the banks, people who have money but they can't use it, people who have money abroad but can't take it back, people who lost property but are still wealthy. All these people are civil society. So uh, what I would maybe call for is a serious, uh, let's say, a huge workshop in order to think about the issues that are at stake and maybe to sort out the differences within the civil society and to organize them into political, let's say, currents or trends or parties or groups and etc. so that we can also compete among us on the choices, the preferences and 
the shade and the profile of tomorrow's Lebanon. You know, for example, today in the protest movement and the civil society, you have people who are calling for a, a complete sacralization and not to touch anything having to do with the public sector, for example, whereby others in the civil society could consider that the public sector and the administration and the state structure is a door to clientelism and corruption and we have to gently dismantle it. Mm. Both mm -hmm. are civil society ethically very correct. They are all for change. They are against the political structure of today, but they are on a complete uh, opposite position regarding a very technical issue. The same applies on other levels. Do we want a public education uh, 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 sector that is much stronger than the private education one? Do we want, I mean, I don't know, a productive economy that is based on X, Y, and Z? Or do we want a banker economy that will replicate the Lebanon of before? All this uh, is, uh, let's say, on the menu of what is today to be debated, today and tomorrow, to be debated among and within the civil society. And this is what we have exactly to prepare today in order not to be taken by surprise tomorrow when the structure, this prevalent structure, will either collapse or be replaced because of the erosion. So what I'm getting from you is that now is the time for organization. That before it was fluid and that was good, and that ran its course. Now it's time to actually turn this thing into a, quote, political movement. Am I, am I getting that right? That that, that structure yes, is necessary uh, it, now. Yeah, you're right. Mm. You're right. But the political movement that will not be shy of its own, let's say, differences. I won't say right, divergences, right. but yeah. let let this be organized mm -hmm. and voiced and expressed so that people have the choice. I mean, they know who is standing for what. Mm -hmm. You know, for uh, I give you an example. Today, the civil society, for example, is almost divided between the two economic plans that have been presented the last week, uh, the government's plan in which certain yeah. people in the civil society see certain things that are not completely nonsense, and the uh, banking association yes. uh, counter plan that has been presented yesterday, in which also part of the civil society is seeing things that are not completely irrational and be taken right. into consideration. Okay, do we have a debate and a dialogue about that? Do we know which one are we really espousing or mm -hmm. are we rejecting mm -hmm. both? Mm -hmm. And if we are rejecting both, what are we proposing instead? This is exactly what we should do today uh, in this kind of, of uh, suspended time in the civil society and the protest movement in order to prepare for tomorrow. You know, it's interesting you're saying this because that, that argument, or not, not, not necessarily the argument, that debate, that debate is mostly online and that when you have these sort of yeah. ideas shared and I kind of I mean you see anecdotal quotes as well the banks are curious yeah. about perhaps acquiring parliament as well that kind of you know yeah that maybe exaggerated yeah. take on the proposal but but that's all online and people are literally voicing their arguments back and forth and you don't see that in other areas and I'm I guess it's sort of a challenge yeah. to take that argument back to the streets and that's really the that's the essence of your piece, which is how to circumvent the coronavirus, especially when the country is literally on the brink. That kind of gets back exactly. to the third this point. Yeah, I want to get back to that third point. I, I like that there is still some optimism and you're kind of uh, you're, you're hoping that Lebanon rediscovers itself and finds a way to kind of 
generate income again and that the middle class can survive, not erode, that uh, we don't need a rentier state. We don't need to bet on sort of borrowed money indefinitely. What is what is a way out for you? I mean, I'm this is literally a sort of just a hypothetical. What are the no. I mean, I sense that it's a services based idea regardless because that's what Lebanese are shining in despite all the issues but um, what is there anything that you could add to that what 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 is that way forward yeah well, you know saying service doesn't mean renterism I mean service is something very productive you mm -hmm. can be very strong in services uh, on the high-tech level on the agri-tech level mm -hmm. on the software engineering thing on uh, designing and and uh, and PR and, and advertising. I mean, these are also services, and they are productive sectors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, what I was talking about was was more a rentierism based on uh, dormant money and etc. But this is not the debate. Uh, to answer your question, if you remember, uh, Ronnie, when we had our for first uh, encounter and conversation, I told you that the choice was ultimately in the hand of of everyone in the country to either go uh, endlessly downwards and reach a kind of uh, Somalia-like situation yes. or at one point rebound and take the, 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 the road that countries like Greece or Portugal have taken. I think that we, we are, uh, this is exactly what I have in mind when I'm uh, kind, when I'm trying to be optimistic uh, despite everything and against all odds. Uh, because I know that we have certain things that are not completely dead uh, already. I mean, there is, of course, the, the, the middle class is eroding, but we still have a very high level of education in the country. We have an entrepreneurial spirit that is almost intact. Uh, there is a creativity that the Lebanese have uh, for reasons that are complicated to explain that is not dead. And also, if you take it on the economic level, on the microeconomic level, you have a lot of things that potentially will help you maybe regain niches and places in the region and in the world economically. Like, for example, lower wages if the Lebanese lira continues to plunge, yeah. like uh, better or stronger prices to exportation if the Lebanese lira is also uh, lower and etc. If we are able to uh, rearrange uh, the ed higher education uh, system because we will get rid of certain clientelistic circuits that are today completely gripping and 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 strangulating the Lebanese university and public public uh, public sector of education. Maybe we'll get a better labor force that is able to go towards innovation, uh, technical I mean technical knowledge, technical learning, and etc. All this is today on the table because we don't have any more the luxury to live above our means. Something that we have done not only the last uh, 25 years or 30 years after the war, but something that we have uh, done since the inception of the country. Lebanon has always lived above its means because it has a kind of cushion abroad or aside or etc. Today, discussion does not exist anymore, not only because the country is broken, and this is where the worldwide situation is very interesting because also the Gulf states are not money providers anymore because the West is in, in, in crisis also itself and it's not as easy today as before to emigrate and seek for a job in Europe, in, in right. Latin America, in Northern America yeah. or in Australia. 
So you are stuck home, you are stuck home and you don't have uh, much to do. And so you have to reinvent really ways to make money, to make production, to make, to give a sense to your life. So I think these are by themselves the opportunity of tomorrow. I'm going to wrap it up with a question that impacts, I think, both of us in different ways. And it's something that I kind of, I got to experience by, by visiting you in your apartment, you telling me that you had chosen to move back to Beirut at a later age in the, in the house that you grew up in. And myself, automatically going back in time now and rereading articles written about Lebanon in the 1980s. And I'm just going to sort of uh, try to mm-hmm. connect all of this together. You are returning to focus on a country that you deeply care about. And many Lebanese have returned in waves in the past to help at least try rebuilding the state or whatever is left of it. It's always always this trying to help in times of crisis. And I read these articles. Some of them are being shared now re- regularly. I, you can't tell if they're written today or perhaps in the late 1980s. And they have to do with economics, less to do with war, more to do with finance. The lira is plunging. There is uh, deep uncertainty. There's risk of hunger. There's hints of famine, even if we don't get there. But it's still the fact that it's being discussed. And you have, in a way, a collapse of a society that was once proud. And that's 1986, 1987, 1988. That, and that could also be 2019, 2020. This is a big question, but I want you to say as much as you can. Do you sense that Lebanon today has to make that fundamental choice because if it doesn't we may not live to see lebanon work we may actually see the implosion of the country for good and i the reason i'm asking you this sort of large question in a direct way is because that word death that has not really been used before in in my in my eyes i've seen sort of that there's always that cautionary light at the end of the tunnel that just means you need certain things to line up the right way and Lebanon can shine. This time around, I don't see that. I actually see what you're saying, which is this is the make it or break it moment. And as much as you can say about that, that do you really think that in 2030, let's say, or 2040, we'll have a country that's working? Or will we end, end up seeing literally the demise of the country? Um, this is a very 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 tough question first of all intellectually and conceptually it's very tough and second emotionally and and personally it's very tough because it's not easy to talk about the the, the ultimate and definitive death of a country you're attached to um, l- let me give you a, a glimpse of my personal bio I, I don't want to talk about myself but it's very illustrative of what you are saying I left the country for the first time this country in 85 86 Mm. when the Lebanese lira collapsed for the first time. Yes. Okay? Yes. It was exactly at that moment. Yeah. So I experienced already what we are living now, mm-hmm. meaning the crumbling of, a, of an economic or at least a financial construction and system, mm-hmm. and the erosion of then the middle class that lasted probably until the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. I came back to Lebanon in 92 when political reconstruction and economic reconstruction was starting, and there was this kind of optimism that we can 
let's say, take some inspirations about uh, for today, but of course it's much more difficult to find it today. And then today I'm coming back to a country that is completely in, uh, in ruin and uh, on the verge of this. Yeah. I completely agree with you that uh, the situation is this time very different because probably the, uh, the, the stock of resources on which we could rely or expect to rely on in 85 and then in 92 and then in two, uh, 2005 and etc are today almost completely depleted. Right. I mean, there's no caution anymore on which to rely. This is why probably, yes, you are right to say it's an existential moment of take or break or life and death or uh, definitive choice and etc but because of that if i end if i want to end on an optimistic note just because of that if you are not completely suicidary and you still have a glimpse or an epsilon of uh, let's say first of life you will find ways to live this time also because you don't want to live elsewhere and also because I think the world is such is in such a way or in such a situation today that you cannot have the luxury very easily to live elsewhere. So this is why at least I think that Lebanese could find ways to rebounce, but under the conditions again, and probably I will end on that, that they do their homework today, not tomorrow, and collectively not divided on the ancient uh, dividing line that has torn them apart. I'm glad you're betting on life. I'll bet on life as well. And I appreciate you always trying, always able to offer a big picture on the minute details. And uh, I'm glad that you shared some of your own personal story as well. And I'm really honored to now know you as a friend and to have seen a bit of your world and exactly what you're talking about. I really hope the next time we speak, it's in person, whether it's in Badado or anywhere in Beirut. Uh, I hope to do this in, in person again because I really prefer the personal interaction to the virtual. I've had enough of this virtual life and hopefully the next time we see each other we'll be both better trimmed for the occasion. <laughs> I um, hope so, yeah. Otherwise we're... If this is reciprocal, Roni. It's a pleasure to talk to you and to discuss with you and really congrats for what you're doing. You're, you're, you're part of the, of the light of the lighting industry for this country. <laughs> Let's well, put it this way. You're very kind to even say that, Joseph. Thank, thank you so much and, and good luck with everything. Thank you, Roni. We'll speak soon. Take care and stay safe. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah. And this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>